I V M. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan. Every week on the podcast, I break down themes in global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. Sometimes I do this with the help of a guest, but today is our special question and answer segment. Now we have four people with two questions, both sort of theoretical, both sort of practical. So I'm going to just dive straight in. Our first question comes from Instagram. Pranjal and Surabhi both asked us about the context of the Indo-Pacific and why it's relevant. Thank you for your questions, folks. The Indo-Pacific is now a trending topic in international relations, so I think it's super important that we discuss it. So what is the Indo-Pacific? Simply put, the Indo-Pacific is an imaginative cartographic space. It's a mental map of a geographical region stretching from the Indian Ocean to the Western and Central Pacific, along with all the coastal states and the inlands. Now, does this mean that there's an actual physical space called the Indo-Pacific? That's debatable, because even if it was, the exact measurements and boundaries are contested. The importance of growing powers in Asia has led to a remapping of the region. In the past couple of decades, it's been called a number of different names, from the Far East, the Pacific Rim, Pacific Asia, the Asian Tigers, the Asia-Pacific, and now the Indo-Pacific. The importance of trade and shipping links, choke points for transit and energy transport, naval diplomacy, are all reasons for its geostrategic significance. Now, the problem with defining the Indo-Pacific is a problem that's inherent with defining any region. How do you define Asia? Even sub-regions are sometimes contested. For example, Afghanistan is a member of SARC, but geographically, is it a part of South Asia or Central Asia or the Middle East? The academic construct of the Indo-Pacific is a new one. It began in the late 2000s, even though it has a long history before it. As of now, there's no single accepted definition of the geographical region because different countries define it as per their interests. So, for example, countries like the United States, Australia, and even Russia have found it advantageous to belong to a larger, more inclusive region where they can play an important role. Some academicians have argued that the Indo-Pacific lays a lot of undue emphasis on China's threat. For example, there's a paper in the Journal of the Indian Ocean Region called Securing the Indian Ocean, Competing Regional Security Constructions. And in it, the authors say, and I quote, the dominant narrative based on an Indo-Pacific region security construction tends to be propagated by conservative practitioners and commentators concerned principally with the use of collective traditional security and hard power directed more particularly towards China, end quote. So when we think of the principal actors in the region, we obviously think of China. However, China doesn't like using this term Indo-Pacific mostly because it sees it as an American construct. Now, the United States of America over the last two decades has been carrying out more and more policies that are directed towards this region. I remember back in the Obama days when he famously declared, America has always been a Pacific power. So the idea is that by including other major powers, like India, Japan, Australia, and to a lesser extent, even Indonesia and Vietnam, these countries could act as counterweights to curb Chinese influence. 
Now, China is worried that asymmetrical threats like piracy or a wartime blockade could stop the transit of oil and energy to it. In fact, one of the main ideas behind its maritime Silk Road strategy is to solve this problem of choke points by creating infrastructure for other countries, while at the same time keeping China at the center. However, the opaque nature of these projects have raised questions about the strategic intent of these investments. Many people have suggested that China could use port infrastructure along the maritime Silk Road for dual purposes, and hyperboles even equate them to overseas bases. For now, China's maritime actions are still aimed at the South and East China Seas and settling its dominance over Taiwan. But it has been looking to expand its reach into the Indian Ocean. The United States, on its part, has tried to integrate itself into the Indo-Pacific, and it primarily does this by involving other countries in balancing against China. While the U.S. has overseas bases across the Indo-Pacific, its economic influence in the region is diminishing because of the rise of Asian players. Now, India will have to find a way to balance its strategic interests along with its economic ones. The Indian Navy is growing and it wants to achieve blue water capabilities and take a larger role in the Indo-Pacific. Think about the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or the Quad, which was in the headlines for the summit it held last week. This is an initiative between India, Japan, Australia, and the US that's focused on establishing a free and open Indo-Pacific. Of course, China is not mentioned by name in any of these initiatives, but it's pretty clear who the efforts are directed against. So for now, the Indo-Pacific is going to continue to be relevant. For as long as the Asian economy is doing well and China is making other countries uneasy, this geographical region is here to stay. Now, moving on to our second question, also from Instagram, Vishal and Tarun asked us, what is the meaning of a nation without a country and why is Tibet one? Thank you so much for your questions, Vishal and Tarun. I know that nation without a country sounds like an oxymoron, but we'll see what it means in international relations. So what is a country? While we use these terms interchangeably, a country is just geographical space, just physical territory. But over the years, many people have given their own definitions of a nation. So for example, Benedict Anderson defines a nation as an imagined political community. On the other hand, Britannica calls a nation state a territorially bound sovereign polity. This polity is ruled in the name of the community of citizens who identify themselves as a nation. I'll break that down for you. What this means is that the nation gains its legitimacy from its people, who trust them with the responsibility of governing them. As you can see, both definitions emphasize the people who make up the nation. So essentially, a nation is its citizens. I'll make it simpler. People belong to the same nation if they consider themselves united by a common descent or historical experience or culture or language and if they inhabit a particular territory. So if I'm a Tamilian sitting in Chennai and you are sitting listening to this in Bangalore, Bhuvaneshwar, Manipur, Chandigarh or Gangtok, we don't have much in common. We don't share the same religion or mother tongue or belief systems. So the only thing that makes us Indian, apart from our passports, is the fact that we all believe that we're Indian. It's the fact that we all feel something when we sing the national anthem or watch the Indian cricket team. To an extent, this is like supporting a football team, right? 
fans of Arsenal or Manchester United or Tottenham don't have anything in common except for that love for the team. Nations work the exact same way. A nation is bound together by nationalism that runs through its people. And in today's world, nationalism has taken on a much more complex meaning. But what it boils down to is the feeling of belonging to a larger community. This nationalism is the thread that ties people of the nation together under a common identity. And the common identity could be anything, right? Common history, culture, language, faith, or a common territory. Now, a lot of people use nation and state interchangeably, but they have slightly different meanings. A state has very clear borders marking its territory, and it's within these borders that the state exercises its power. Now, states are sovereign actors within their territories, and it's this key factor of sovereignty when it's missing that it's called a nation without a country or a nation without a state. So communities in stateless nations have shared cultural identities, but they lack the means to govern themselves independently. Now, there are a number of stateless nations. Some of these eventually gained sovereignty, but a lot of them are still fighting for it. For example, Israel was recognized as a state only in 1948. Before that, the Jews were a stateless nation. Today, on the other hand, Palestine is possibly considered the most well-known example of a stateless nation. Although Palestinians are fighting over their promised land, their case is unique because 135 members of the United Nations recognize Palestine's sovereignty. Now, why is Tibet called a nation without a state? With an area of 2 million square kilometers, Tibet is one of the largest stateless nations. And if you're not aware, Tibet lies to the north and east of the Himalayas. The region is currently under the full control of the People's Republic of China. However, a lot of this region comes under the Tibet Autonomous Region. Interestingly, on paper, the region has its own sovereign autonomous government under the PRC. But in reality, Tibet doesn't actually enjoy autonomy or political freedoms. How did Tibet end up in this situation? To understand it, we need to go back all the way to 1912. In 1912, after the fall of the Qing dynasty in China, Tibet gained autonomy for the first time. Now, there are many debates as to whether that made Tibet a de facto independent state or simply a part of China with a relatively high internal autonomy. But Tibet's head of state, the Dalai Lama, made an official declaration in 1913 that they were a small religious and independent nation. In 1950, the Chinese communists invaded Tibet and this annexation obviously ended any shred of autonomy and sovereignty. The Chinese government doesn't see this as illegal occupation. It believes that Tibet has been an unquestionable part of China over the last 800 years, which is a debate for another episode. Now, the 14th Dalai Lama fled from Tibet in 1959 and he sought refuge in India. He settled here with thousands of Tibetans in exile and established the Tibetan government in exile. Now, this is a sore point um, that sad bilateral relations between India and China for years now. The Central Tibetan Administration, which is the name of the Tibetan government in exile, wants to regain Tibet's autonomy and self-governance within a democratic China. Obviously, these demands haven't been met by the Chinese government, and that sparked many protests. Tibet's current situation is a violation of human rights. An article on the Free Tibet website says that Tibetan people are robbed of their right to maintain their own identity and autonomy. Tibet's legal status is a matter of international concern. 
and one whose resolution is long overdue. Now that brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. I've attached links to stuff about the Indo-Pacific, Tibet and nation states in the episode bio, so do check those out. If you have questions or comments about foreign policy in general, then you can send them across and like today's episode, your questions will be featured. So email me at ibmstatesofanarchy@gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter at hamsneh. If you want to show us some love, send this episode to someone who you think may enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app or website, but on Castbox, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or whatever you're using right now. We'll be back next week.